there's a natural inclination to say, oh, God, the internal medicine people are going to tell me where I f- again. And oh, there's number one. <laughs> back to the curbsiders well hello hello Stuart. this is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge Mm. i'm dr matthew watto here with multiple co-hosts dr stewart at saying this now dr stewart kent brigham well hello again dr paul williams hey guys and dr shreya paresh trevetti hello I thought you spelled Paresh with a U for some reason, but I'm not surprised that I was guessing wrong. P-A-R-E-S-H, just in case the audience wants to write it down for themselves. Shreya, good to have you back. (laughs) Yes, I'm so happy being back. Yeah, I don't know why I'm riffing on your middle name here. Don't know. That's not very nice of you. Let's just jump right into uh, Picks of the Week. Paul, do you have something for us? I think for this pick of the week, I'm going to harken back to a cartoon that debuted in 2003. I just I don't know how well known it is, but it's the show The Venture Brothers. Have you guys ever seen it? Yes, yes, I've no. watched that. One. No, I haven't. It, I, I, I what? No way. So, so I've it watched is, something that Paul's watched, not you. Uh, so now I'm now I'm questioning its goodness. <laughs> in any case, it's kind of like C Lab 2021. It's the same kind of goodness. It's it's co-written by these guys, Jackson Public and Doc Hammer. It's actually a cartoon in the style of kind of Johnny Quest. It's a little bit of a rip yeah. off that. But it is completely absurd. It is a genius meditation on failure. Um, it has amazing voice acting by Patrick Warburton, particularly, and it has a score that has better than any rate it has to be by this guy named J.G. Thorwell. So it's just, it's a complete, thoughtful sort of universe of its own that also happens to be really, really funny um, and subversive. So if, if you're into cartoons that are not for kids, I would highly recommend The Venture Brothers. Yes, wonderful. Next, I want to go to Shreya. And Shreya, I think you have, uh, different than a pick of the week, In since we're talking about emergency medicine versus internal medicine tonight, why don't you tell people why you chose internal medicine rather than emergency medicine or, or some other specialty? Yeah. So third year of med school, I had a really hard time figuring out every kind of field I rotated in, I had a little bit of a spark everywhere. And ER definitely had this exciting spark of uh, um, like resuscitation, immediate management. I thought I wanted to be a vascular surgeon for a little bit. I thought tying knots was like the coolest thing and I was really good at it. So I was like, oh, I should I should just like tie knots and be in the zone in the OR all the time. Um, but I really had to search uh, within myself to figure out which one of those sparks is going to be sustainable. Um, and that took me a hard, a long time to do. And, and for me, it, I had to realize that the most durable joy for me was, um, being in a position to, to give patients compassion and in like a long-term way as a primary care physician. And then also I loved, I, I kind of, some of, something I pride myself on is a really strong history. Like in, I feel like in IM you can take a really great history to really find out gaps in someone's care, prevent admissions. Um, I, I love that. And I love being someone's primary care doctor. I love when someone's like, yeah, Dr. Trevetti, that's my doc. Um, that joy for me was long lasting and kind of trumped all the other little sparks in the other fields. I personally, for me, I, I chose internal medicine the way that I've chosen jobs and residencies and things like that. Basically, coin. I just go, yeah, I flip a coin. No, I just go by feel. I'm like, these are my people. I feel comfortable around these people. I, I kind of 
I have a similar mindset to these people, mm. and that's that's really how I choose. So it was all uh, all just by feel, all just intuition, system one thinking, which we'll we'll talk about later. Yeah, wonderful. I have too much system too. I get all <laughs> deep in there, and it gets well, crazy sometimes. That's what you use for internal medicine, but when you're making a decision about how to spend the rest of your it life, sounds like you use, use system, system two. <laughs> No, but I think it's actually really relevant for the episode. Like even when I'm sort of counseling students, I, you know, I think personality types tend to sort themselves out into the specialties. And so you hang out with the people that you like hanging out with. Right. And that should actually play a pretty important role because you're trapped with these people for the so, rest of your life. So, Paul, why do you hang out with us? It's a great question. Um, I think mostly as an act of self-flagellation. <laughs> <laughs> At least it wasn't self-flagellance. All right. <laughs> we can fix that in post. <laughs> Stuart? So, uh, yes. Um, my pick of the week is so I wanted to briefly um, just mention that the the program that I that I use to write music I don't know if if anyone's interested in it they can go take a look at this it's actually available on the App Store it's called Music Studio um, it's by Alexander Gross it, it, the uh, it, it sells for fourteen ninety nine on, on the App Store if you want all the uh, samples that come along with it it's another six ninety nine um, it, it's actually a pretty well put together uh, on the fly music studio that you can use I, I used a lot of of different programs in the past on um, and and found that this is this is a pretty helpful tool you can also make your own samples make your own loops as well it's it's actually pretty powerful it's a lot better at at least on the ipad and on the fly uh, than uh, GarageBand. and now to get to the episode i think that everyone's probably heard of dr scott weingart he i haven't Scott Weingart is a clinical associate professor and chief of the Division of Emergency Critical Care, Director, Resuscitation and Acute Critical Care at Stony Brook Hospital in Stony Brook, New York. And his uh, I'm going to go with his bio for New Wave Foamy Type Conferences, and that is verbatim from his website. Scott is an ED intensivist from New York. He did fellowships in trauma, surgical critical care, and ECMO. He is best known for talking to himself about resuscitation and critical care on a podcast called MCRIT, which has been downloaded greater than 19 million times. And if you haven't heard it, you really should check it out. They are short podcasts, super intense, dense with information about how to save the sickest patients. It's very well done. And... We have I, some... I heard he's a. I heard he's a fellow of the Utopian College of Emergency Medicine. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, please check out. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, the letters behind his name. He's M D F C C M F F U C E M Dip H T F U, and you can Google search what all that means. It's quite entertaining. Thank you for reminding me, Stuart. You're welcome. And without further ado, here is our discussion with Dr. Scott Weingart. Well, I think we should just ease into the talk here with us. We have from MCRIT, Dr. Scott Weingart. Hey, folks. Scott, thanks so much for joining us on the show. And uh, we, we go first names with all our guests, and I think most people know you as Scott anyway, so I imagine you won't mind us calling you that for the show. Oh, I'd be offended if you called me Dr. <laughs> Weingart. That would, be, that would be just be ridiculous. Yeah. Well, now that I know what some of the letters mean in your title, uh, you know, I feel, <laughs> I feel informal is the way to go with you. In case some of our audience doesn't know who you are, could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Oh, gosh. Um, Resuscitationist, autodidact, uh, dad, uh, who spends his spare time talking to himself. (laughs) And spoken in uh, in more of a... I can't even think. Okay, Stuart, that's that's a good way to start the episode. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was it was it was spoken to the point without any poetic prose, just like an ER doctor. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there's so much loaded in that tiny yeah. little comment. That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> very very fitting for the episode we're trying to pull off yes. here. Well, how about someone else ask Scott a question before we get on to the IM versus EM stuff? Well, I think even on your website, you have uh, like an entire section devoted to books, if I'm not mistaken. So rather than a favorite book, just just a recent one that's been impactful for you that you think people would benefit from. Oh, gosh. Uh, can I give you two? Sure. Okay. So I would definitely recommend uh, A Guide to the Good Life by Will Irvine. It uh, has really shaped a bunch of my talks that I've been given over the past year. It is basically an approachable vision of Stoic philosophy. And I, I think it can really change people's lives. And then uh, this hasn't been recent, but I think it's the one I will recommend to everyone uh, is Getting Things Done by David Allen, a book that could just change your entire uh, approach to productivity and actually, you know, accomplishing the things you want to accomplish. In that vein, um, I was looking at all the tweets this weekend from Fix 17, which just sounds like an amazing conference. And um, a bunch of your slides kind of were similar things that get into uh, – the book, get it, uh, getting things done. So the next question I wanted to ask, like, how can listeners better protect or manage their time? Kind of some particular tidbits that you want listeners to take away. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and th this is something I've been thinking about a lot. There was another book called deep work by a guy named Cal Newport that really set a lot of us off on this, uh, this path of thinking about how to protect our time. Uh, you have to have some goals in your career and then just be incredibly assiduous about guarding those the time for those goals uh, at, at all costs. Uh, otherwise, it's so easy in medicine to just get trapped into these committees and this, mm -hmm. uh, this work on stuff you don't really care about and doesn't really advance the things you want to accomplish in the world. So just setting those goals, like just sitting down and actually writing down, like 10 years from now, here's the, some of the things I'd want to accomplish. That alone will markedly change how you approach your time and attention and, and making commitments to those, you know, mm -hmm. instead of just having vague ideas and dreams. Absolutely. Right. Um, what's something about you that you can tell us, uh, on our show <laughs> that we won't ever forget. <laughs> oh, man, I was supposed to be a professional chef. Uh, my, my folks didn't know this. I was planning on throwing away my entire college education and doing that. But, uh, they came around recruiting for medical school and I realized I could cook and be a doctor, but not vice versa. So I kind of <laughs> abandoned that, but I, I'd just be slaving the way in the back of a professional kitchen right now, working like 18 hour days and smelling like old soup. So uh, I, I, I guess I lucked out. You still cook? Oh yeah, absolutely. Scott, I wanted, we, we talked a little bit about how you're protecting your time. I just wanted to know with You've you've been doing the podcasting thing for a long time. You're speaking at conferences. You have a website that's very well done. How much of this has been intentional? Has been a plan from the start? And and is is it deliberate? It seems like you're really good at planning this and and moving things forward. Can you can you give us some some advice on that? Uh, no, in fact, everything <laughs> has been just the opposite. Um, it, it was happenstance that this all started. I just love non-medical podcasts like Radio Lab and This American <laughs> Life. Uh, it, it got me into it. I just happened to have spent uh, my part-time job all through college as a audio and video engineer, and uh, those two came together. And I'm like, I, I could think I could do this, and. Uh, it, it got an audience. And after that, it was all self-perpetuating and everything just naturally uh, just 
fired off from there with really no planning at all. I'm I'm really crappy at planning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure me and the audience, uh, lots of people listening, feel a lot better hearing you hearing you say that. I so I think the obvious question to start off with for the main topic tonight is is do emergency medicine physicians hate internal medicine physicians? <laughs> what? That's the question. Yeah, I think so. Hate is a is a strong word, but. What feelings, I would say, do do they have? I have very mixed feelings about EM doctors, but on the other side, I'd love to hear your perspective. You know, it, it it's so institution dependent. Uh, so I will speak to the place where I spent the majority of my career. So I spent 10 years at a inner city trauma center, uh, all immigrant population, and the internal medicine folks were our best allies. In fact, we they were the people we felt closest to in the hospital. And um, there was definitely other specialties that our hatred, if we want to go that strongly, uh, <laughs> would, would lie with. And it wasn't internal medicine. Things are a little bit tougher at my current place, Janice General. But uh, still, I, I have warm feelings towards internal medicine. But I will say this. I am not an ER doc. And I did it for part of the beginning of my career. And uh, I stopped doing it because I'm not capable of doing that job. It's just too hard and too disparate from the things uh, I think I'm good at. So I, I have a good perspective, I think, because I could see both sides. I, I feel uh, akin to the EM docs, though I'm not one. And I, I think having done inpatient work, I could really uh, sympathize with the IM people as well. Are you spending most of your time now as an intensivist? And so you're receiving patients from the ER just like we are. Is that is that the case? Yeah, some some of them come from the ER. Some I'll take directly from the ambulance. But the point is that uh, every patient that comes into my EDICU is going to be admitted with like a very you know small number of exceptions, and no one fights about those admissions. They're all obviously patients that are coming in the hospital. So most of the fights disappear. Some of the stuff we could talk about in terms of level of care still is there, but I avoid most of the disputes. Well, what do you think? What do you think the disputes when, when you were practicing as an emergency medicine physician, where, where do you think the disputes came from if there were some between internal medicine or between just any of the specialties? Yeah, there were a ton. And I see them every day with my colleagues because I'm right next to them in the ED. So I see all this and my residents have to deal with all this stuff. <laughs> um, so let, let's, as a baseline, if you will uh, grant me this, let's eliminate the bad ER docs okay. and the bad, the bad hospitalists, the bad internal medicine docs, because there's definitely some horrible emergency medicine doctors out there. Uh, and there's definitely some bad IM people too, but there's probably uh, more bad EM docs. And here's what you need to understand if you didn't already get this is this specialty is new. So there are still people practicing emergency medicine who never did an EM residency, who has none of the mindset of emergency medicine, who essentially failed at their original specialty. And they are they are staffing many of the emergency departments. We're right at the end of that era. But some of the people you may hate may fall into that category of people really not part of the specialty as we see it today. And how does the mindset differ? We definitely are training residents now who are, I think, very, they consider very strongly, can I send this patient home? Is this an appropriate admission? Um, the the older generation, and there are some amazing EM docs from that generation, but the ones that are causing you problems we're really probably not particularly smart in the first place. Like EM was, <laughs> was the bastion 
of uh, of failure. It was a place where you could moonlight for good money, even though you couldn't make any original specialty. And let me be clear. So and I get, you know, railroaded out of my specialty. Like I said, there are some amazing, amazing EM docs from that generation. But you're also going to see some problem children. I think it, it does seem like when an emergency medicine physician is is admitting a patient to internal medicine, that the approach has been different the whole time. And can you talk about how their think their thought process might differ? Because we see the patient, we're like, okay, this is kidney injury. Are there what's the history? Are there urine electrolytes for me to look at? And then they get they get upset that they that they weren't sent by the ER doc. That the ER doc just gave them a bunch of fluid. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So so this is like the meat of the matter is we see things differently. A EM doc in many circumstances is practicing heuristic based medicine. Um, they've seen enough sick patients who crap mm-hmm. out and they just look at a patient and say, this patient clearly needs to be admitted. And they might've made that decision within the first minute of seeing that patient. And everything from that point on is figuring out a decent story to sell to yeah. the inpatient team. <laughs> right. So what, what you're saying is that they all need to read the book, How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman. <laughs> Well, you know, it's so funny you bring that up and, you know, you're doing it tongue in cheek, but that book was a real failure to describe what emergency medicine is. And we've had these debates. I've actually interviewed these folks for the Mm -hmm. podcast. But, uh, you know, system two thinking is not what you really want in emergency medicine or as a fighter pilot or as a firefighter. Mm -hmm. In all these professions, uh, recognition prime decision making which is a elevated form of heuristic based thinking actually is what you want. That if you tried to be a system two thinker, you would die in emergency. Medicine. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like every internist. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the source of our issues is I think we're thinking about things differently. That mm-hmm. different thinking is to the benefit of the patient. You want both sides of it, but it is probably the source of our conflicts as well. Uh, but if we tried to really puzzle through every patient that came in, like, the amount of, and you know, you're not supposed to use this term, but I think it's okay on this podcast. You know, the amount of meat you need to move in emergency medicine, uh, you would have thousands of people in the waiting room if you tried on every patient. Sometimes you have to, it's a real diagnostic dilemma. You're not sure what to do. And, and those are the ones you spend time on, but so much of it has to be system one thinking. Yeah, and and just to define for people who aren't familiar with the system one, system two, I, I believe is it's Kahneman is it, he's a behavioral economist or he is some sort of a psychologist who's described this. So system one is your your fast, your kind of gut reaction to something like you don't even know why you think it, you just think it. And system two is kind of your your slow, your thoughtful, your your adding your reasoning to it, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely right, and you know, but if you delve into it a little more, you find system one is intuitive based and that intuition is fueled by experience. Mm -hmm. So the more experience you have and the more you have really tried to hone that intuition, the more system one becomes a source of benefit rather than a source of cognitive bias. Right. Mm -hmm. So if if you're truly an expert uh, as an emergency medicine physician, that intuition, you're going to be able to put a lot more stock in it than somebody who's brand new or fresh out of residency or someone who just hasn't done the work to become an expert then their intuition is not going to be great. It, that's yeah. where you really fail. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if the availability bias. So I'm assuming they're using a lot of availability bias to determine how to make decisions. But if they say, well, you know, I had that one guy came with a pinky toe pain, but yet, yet he actually had a STEMI. And so everyone who comes up with a pinky toe pain, they're, they're wanting to admit them to rule out a STEMI. 
Yeah, you know, that's where we, we delve into just bad doctors with bad thinking. But that certainly can be an issue. And but but by the same token, if you've actually seen a set of symptoms that are subtle, uh, that may be the only way you diagnose things like aortic dissection, which we know presents with with so rarely in its textbook form. So, yes, uh, you know, it's a very fine line when you you are in this you know black box of system one thinking, whether it's a bad bias or a beneficial uh, time saving heuristic. I give I give ED docs a lot of credit for doing system one thinking so well, but I think as you kind of were alluding to a lot, that's where a lot of the problems come in because if you're so glued to this chest pain and you've already kind of like mentally determined they're being admitted to rule out this chest pain and um, you can very clearly, and I've had this multiple times at Cashlack Hospital where um, this chest pain needs to be admitted, they're mentally signed off from this patient. And this, this CO2 going up to the 70s from a baseline of 40s is forgotten about and not handed over. The fact that he's kind of altered from baseline is not talked about or handed over. I go see the patient three hours later and I'm like, oh God, I might need to admit him to the ICU for a hypercarbic respiratory failure. Um, I think that's where a lot of the problems come in when you're just kind of type one thinking or thinking about that one problem and mentally signed off. Can you talk a little bit more about about that and probably the, that'll be a good segue into kind of thinking about transitions of care? Yeah, that's such a good example because it, it brings up something I think a little bit differently. That ER doc probably looked at that patient and said, oh, this guy's not going home. And that was the system one. And and we agree based on the evolution of that case. But what you're dealing with is a little something different. And uh, when they actually looked at academic medical centers, an ED attending should be seeing around two, between two and 2.5 patients per hour. Um, at, at Janus General right now, they're seeing about five an hour. So there is no time to go back to patients unless someone spurs you. So if that nurse comes to you out of that room because they have less patients than you do, though they still have way too many, and says, he looks a little bit more drowsy. I don't like how he looks. You're going to go back there. You're going to reevaluate. You might say, oh, this patient you know, is a known COPD or let's send a venous blood gas, figure out exactly what you just said. But unless that happened, you might be the first person who recheck that patient. And now, of course, you're looking at this and you're like, whoa, uh, this, this is obvious. We need to do something. But when you go to that ED doc, there's some other cognitive biases at play, because first of all, uh, they're probably in the midst of an entirely separate mindset dealing with two other patients. So now they have to reframe everything. But also there's a natural inclination to say, oh, God, the internal medicine people are going to tell me where I f again. And oh, there's number one. And. And you're totally right to do it, but it, it would be a very strong ego structure that's not going to have a negative reaction to that exact situation. I, so how can we uh, collaborate? Because I, I think that whenever someone comes up to you, I, I've seen this happen in the hospital multiple times recently where I just go to talk to another provider. It doesn't have to be an e emergency medicine physician, but just by approaching them, they might think that you're there trying to challenge their medical care when really maybe you're just trying to get... What was your reasoning? I, I just want to talk to you about this patient. I, I want to make sure we have a good handoff here so I can know what you were seeing that made you think something differently than I did. And sometimes you just have to push through that. If the person has an ego, uh, I would encourage all our listeners to try to think, am I being e like egotistical right now or is this is this person really trying to collaborate with me? Um, because I've had just some issues lately and it's it, it's sad that that is happening. 
Yeah, you know, if, if you know your consultants or your IM team, it's easy. And you know the ones who are just genuinely good folks and the ones who are going to give you a hard time no matter what. And so that that makes it easier. But some it, it, there's, there's multiple things that feed into this. Uh, one is, for instance, another heuristic that you're going to find in emergency medicine is it's very difficult for us to discharge elderly people because mm -hmm. that's a heuristic that, that has been just beaten into emergency medicine residents throughout their training. And it's probably a valuable heuristic. And it's not to say that every 85 year old should automatically be admitted, but it, there's very few that probably should go home. <laughs> um, and, and that, that makes for a lot of conflict because, you know, they very appropriately will come down and say, well, why the hell are you admitting this patient? And your, your answer in your head is because because they're 85 and they don't have an extremity complaint, but they're looking for answers. So you've already, if you've done it for a while, you've found some stupidity to justify it. And if you haven't, then they're going to be stuttering and trying to figure it out. But that heuristic is, is usually more beneficial than harmful, uh, which, which is not, to say, I, I discharge plenty of elderly patients, especially because now I have the luxury that all of my patients have doctors uh, at my old place. None of them did. But when they have doctors, it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. Call up their PMD. The PMD says they'll see them in their office in the next you know, 24 to 48 hours. That's an easy discharge. Mm -hmm. And my patients speak English, so I could actually speak to them about <laughs> you know, what a safe discharge is. But at the old place, uh, there was huge language barriers. None of them had seen a doctor for 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, all of them have no medical history, which means they have every medical history, but no one's diagnosed it. Those are tough. Those are really hard. Um, but then there's also, you know, because we've been ragging on EM a little bit, there's, there's the cases where EM may have a little bit more knowledge about IM about certain things, like, for instance, toxicology. Like, I had to fight a bunch of admissions for sulfonylurea-based hypoglycemia. Now, you guys are all clever. You're all academic docs. You probably know about this. <laughs> but if you take a doc who's been out for, you know, 20, 30 years, and you tell them you're admitting a patient for one episode of hypoglycemia because they're on a sulfonylurea, they're going to be telling you you're crazy. But that patient just desperately needs to be admitted. They have a tendency to die. So, you know, stuff like that also makes it tough. You kind of touched on transitions of care there, talking about you're willing to discharge an 85-year-old if you can speak with their primary medical doctor. You're probably getting some extra history from that person. What does this person, what do they normally look like? Uh, are you worried about this person? Do they have resources at home? So how can we do the transitions of care, whether it's uh, to the inpatient side, how can we do those transitions of care better with ER docs? Is there a way that we're approaching you as internists that is be that is being like counter collaborative or whatever the word would be? Huh. You know, I, I think for the most part, it goes pretty well. The, the sign-off situation gets kind of annoying sometimes uh, because like I said, because of the time constraints, a, a lot of the times the EM docs are not going to have the information you want. Yeah. And, and if you preface the desire for that information with like, I know you might not have gotten to this, but did you do renal electrolytes? Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it may, it may temper it a little bit because chances are they didn't. Um, I, again, I have the luxury of, uh, the hyponatremias to 116 come to my unit. We have a much smaller number of patients we see per hour. Chances are we sent everything. Um, but if you got that patient from the regular ED, no, they probably just saw the sodium of 112 and said, this patient needs to be admitted at this point. And, mm. um, so, you know, thinking in the EM mindset that these people are generally trying to do the right thing aside from those, you know, outliers and 
they're generally pretty smart. I mean, this this wasn't the case 20 years ago, but right now EM is the toughest specialty to get a residency in. I mean, we're getting the cream of the crop. So if in your mind is like this dumb ED doc is, you know, screwing this up again, that's probably not the case. So if you eliminate that from your mind and you'll quickly realize the ones who actually are dumb, it takes about, you know, <laughs> two months in your in new hospital to figure out, no, this guy genuinely just not smart. Um, but if, if you just take that out of the mix, then all of a sudden you have to ask yourself, well, then why didn't they do a workup on this patient? Why are they admitting this crappy admission? And there's probably a reason. Now, it may be a systemically bad reason, but it's generally not stupidity. So, you know, a lot of the times when I have problems with uh, any service in the hospital, it's when I know uh, I'm a I'm a fairly empathic guy. It's when I know they're talking to me and they think I'm an idiot because they because <laughs> they probably they probably dealt with EM docs, you know, 40 years ago when they might have been not, you know, the, the brightest of specialties. But right now you're dealing with a pretty with it specialty. Um, so if they're doing something that you just think is dumb, then there's probably a reason. And you might even want to ask them, like, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. You know, if you could say it in a kind fashion, if you say it with any uh, disdain in your voice, it's already game over. <laughs> what, what, what's going on? Why, why are you admitting this 30 year old? You know, because in general, the heuristic works the opposite way, too. Like generally, young patients should never be admitted unless something really is going on with them. A, cu a couple things I wanted to say. One, I, I really appreciate you being honest that like sometimes it's just, hey, this person is elderly and I don't have a good reason because I feel like I, I, I feel um, a lot of turf being medical consult this week on Cashlack and someone's trying to make up a reason. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm stuck with this admission for two hours. He's going to be discharged tomorrow. We're wasting thousands of hospital dollars uh, for this admission. But if someone was just honest about me that they weren't sure and they wanted a little bit more help, I'd feel, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd probably be a lot more collaborative. And then the other thing you just mentioned was that um, kind of saying back to someone, oh, so why didn't you, you know, in a maybe kinder fashion, send these urine electrolytes or whatever? Because I feel like the culture right now is not to kind of give feedback or, or ask. I kind of will get an admission. I'll think in my head, okay, fine, I'll deal with this mess myself. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, maybe Matt feels more empowered being attending to like go up to them and, and maybe give feedback, but I feel like I'm not in that position. So in, in a sense, a lot of IM docs are just thinking these things in their head with about EM docs without further conversation being like, okay, maybe Vank for a UTI was not the best idea, but not telling them. I, I would say give the feedback, but make sure that you could be honest with yourself that you're doing it in good spirit because EM embraces every specialty and especially at the beginning of their careers, attendings uh, just need to know so much information that you are going to continue learning throughout your career. So if you could give feedback of something that is very internal medicine-y about like, hey, if you ever deal with this again, here's the workup we are going to do upstairs. So, you know, we love that. I mean, that is wonderful. Um, but the problem is it's very hard, especially at the resident level, to not let the misery of the previous six admissions filter into how that stuff is said. <laughs> so when Matt and I were residents together in the CICU, um, there was a certain attending whose name I won't mention, but whom I loved, who whenever there was a call about admission, he would listen without interruption. He would nod, there, his face would be completely blank. And then when the conversation was done, he would simply say, thanks, we're happy to have him, and then hang up the phone. And mm. I, I'll never forget that. I kind of feel the same way. I was, 
I was I was fully planning on being an emergency medicine doctor um, all throughout medical school, and I, I'm probably the wrong person for this particular podcast because I actually I love my EM colleagues. And I, I guess my question for you is, in terms of transition to say inpatient from EM to the floors, what information is absolutely critical? Because my mindset is, is I'm probably going to do most of the work up myself. Anyway, I'm going to ask all the same questions all over again. If there's stuff that wasn't ordered, I'm going to ask them labs anyway. So it's hard for me to get too whomped up about the details that I, I think others get worked up for. So what information needs to be conveyed and what makes for a, a smooth transition from the emergency department to the floors? Yeah, at my old hospital, uh, there was no need to call the inpatient team. What happened is they would get the admission, they would come down and see the patient. And then only if there was a question, and most of the time I'd say like, 80, 90% of the time, no one, neither service had either any question about why the patient was being admitted, what was going on. Uh, then it would just, the patient would disappear. The other 20%, they would come and they'd say, hey, what were you thinking? Or what do you see? Or was this patient sicker earlier? They look pretty good now. Is this a patient you think we could discharge? Because like we said, there's very little rechecking of patients you've already committed to admitting. And it may very well be both of you go to the bedside and say, yeah, this guy looks a million times better. So these mandatory sign-offs, I think, are detrimental. I think it's where a lot of the fights happen. I think if we reserve, you know, face-to-face sign-off for the ones where there was a question, all of a sudden those become more powerful and more useful to both services. Uh, and and that really should rely on a functional EMR. Uh, ours sucks, even though it's one of, <laughs> one, of, one of the big two, but you can't get a summary of what happened. But at our old place, when you looked at the EMR, like within two pages, you actually saw why the patient was being admitted, the key lab tests, the key vital signs. And most of the time, you didn't need anything more than that. That's really interesting. You say that, that you think that there shouldn't be these mandatory handoffs and maybe just particular ones for the ones that you're really concerned about. Because the movement right now in internal medicine is something called IPASS. And among internal medicine residents, we have this kind of standardized handoff where we do I as in illness severity, patient summary, action list, situational awarenesses. And then this, this receiver has to synthesize back what they heard. And they've seen that this like decreases preventable errors from communication. So I was actually curious in terms of like, should we start standardizing something between EM and IM, you know, maybe I being like, what is their indication for admission um, and some other situational awarenesses and so on. But it's interesting to hear that you think actually it might be a, a waste of time to save that energy for the more questionable patients. Yeah, you know, I, I looked into all the data on these uh, SBAR as well, and uh, for the most part, it's crap. I mean, they, they could they <laughs> yeah. could sell you on the errors it's preventing. It's it's not. Um, now, look, you sign out a critically ill patient, and that sign out should be totally regimented. We round by systems with the fellow who is taking that patient, and that's where you you save the juice for. But if you're mandating this stuff, which is what the government would have us do on every single patient in a ritualized form for something that should, for the most part, be unspoken, and if spoken, it should take one sentence, then it becomes very painful, and people start hating it. I I would say, you know, for the most part, reserve that for when it really matters. Yeah, you're still going to get the phone call initially calling the admission, so you'll 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 get a quick story. I don't is that you're not suggesting we don't talk at all? Is that am I understanding you right, Scott? <laughs> well, I think he is. I. I I have the benefit that my residents do all the phone calls, so I only get to have to observe the pain on both sides. <laughs> I, I 
I honestly don't think we're doing anything good. Uh, I think it, it does lead to making up stories. I think it's just, as you were saying earlier, you know, for the most part, you're going to be coming down and talking to the patient and probably would be better off unbiased by the pre-workup already done by the ED. I think you're actually selling yourself short to think that their diagnostic closure is going to benefit you. I, I, now, it's different in hospitals where the hospitals aren't seeing the patient until the next morning. They probably do need to know something. But in the places where someone's coming down and seeing that patient, when it was me doing consults, I didn't want to know. In fact, they would try to tell me a story on the phone, and I'd say, I'm going to see the patient, and then I'll come and stop by afterwards for the critical care consults because I did not want them biasing my thought patterns. Hmm. That's an amazing point. You, like, blast away anchoring virus. That's, I love it. Okay. Exactly right. Good. I'm glad I asked that clarifying question there. Yeah, Paul's fanboying there. Yeah. <laughs> no talking to anyone. I'm all for it. This sounds great. <laughs> Scott, you mentioned something about the devil in the gaps. Is that something you think we should get into here? Yeah. Oh, definitely. This, okay. this may, may solve a lot of the, you know, putting up your hands, why the ED docs doing the stupid stuff they do. Okay. So, you know, I hope you'll put this in the show notes because it's a lot easier for people to actually visualize definitely. than, but- uh, what you have is a, is a line going from zero to 100, and this is the post-workup in the ED probability of serious disease. And when that number is somewhere between 10 and 100, generally we don't have any fights with our IM colleagues. You know, I'm admitting a patient for chest pain, maybe for ACS, maybe they have a die allergy, so I can't do my CT scan to rule that out. And uh, everyone would agree post-workup, there's a 20%, a 30% pre-test probability or post-workup probability disease. You guys don't fight those admissions. Those are, those are, everyone says, yeah, makes sense. No problem. No fights. Now, there's another gap between 2% and 10% where that means when you look at that patient we're admitting, you, you say with 90% assurance, there is nothing wrong with that patient, right? And you're, you're correct. You know, 90% sure. 90% sure feels really good. When you are 90% sure of something, you have already closed that decision in your head. So little of what we have to decide in life do you get 90% assurance. You know, major decisions like where you're going to move, where you're going to work. Yeah, you maybe have like 60, right? 90 feels so good. <laughs> but if we started discharging patients with a 90% post-workup probability, it would take one shift for us to really miss something serious and one week for one of those misses to have a really bad outcome. So we can't do that. And the number that's established in the uh, literature, and this they actually done like real statistical analysis of this, is 2%. You're allowed to miss 2% of serious disease. And that number accounts for the workup you know, the overworkup that comes from trying to get down to 2%. So that's the happy medium. But when I try to admit a patient between 2 and 10%, you guys say, what the f***, or as I wrote it on the page, you know, WTF, why are you admitting this patient? But when you look at it from a statistical standpoint, that patient does need to be admitted. If there's nothing further I could do is in the ED for their workup. So that's the WTF gap. And that leads to a lot of dismay on the part of I am, but it's legitimate most of the time to admit those patients. Now, sometimes the workup could have been completed. The ED doc just dropped the ball. Like they didn't do a D dimer on a PE patient. That was a miss. Okay. They should have done the workup, but when there's really nothing to do to get them from 10 to two, that's an appropriate admission. And then the last gap I call the scumbag gap. <laughs> and that's, 
that's between the zero and 2%. And that's where the lawyers live. And the problem with that is you're supposed to be missing 2% of serious disease. Otherwise, you're working up way too many of them. Uh, but what happens is you miss a, a PE or a dissection, and they'll sue you. And they'll figure out all the ways that you obviously should have done the CT scan on this patient. But the problem is they don't look at the other you know, 1,000 patients who got an unnecessary CT scan to get that 2 to 0. And that mm -hmm. gap fuels a lot of the misery as well. And those patients and really should be absolutely right. Absolutely yeah. right. That is great. I, I love it. It's almost like our litigious society has uh, increased <laughs> healthcare costs to push down that uh, 2% to 0%. Hmm. Well, totally, totally. If you want to fix healthcare, because we can't do it by you know going Canadian or English and just you know fixing the legal system, that's not going to happen. But uh, a fix that could happen no one ever picks this up when I when I say it. No, no one ever agrees with me. But if we just stopped being able to sue individual doctors and you'd only be able to sue hospitals or groups, I, I think that would make a major change. And I think the lawyers wouldn't be that unhappy with it. I mean, they'd still really lobby against it, but I think it could be a win. And all of a sudden, uh, I think you could do a lot more with with safe discharge and, and not admitting patients. Well, I think we should start to wrap up just for interest of time. Does anyone have burning questions for Scott before we ask him for kind of wrap up or take home points? Uh, let's see. I've got a couple of questions from Facebook and Twitter that I can fire away if no one else has questions. All right, Which sure. Ones? So uh, Don't open a can of worms here. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. All right. So, so, so uh, Scott, first of all, uh, what current beers are you drinking? Oh God, I'm I'm obsessed with sour ales, and uh, I'm blanking on the name, but folks go look it up. But there's uh, Dogfish Head Brewery makes a session sour yeah. ale that is mind blowing, and you could drink a couple without getting wasted. Okay. So here's a question from a medical student: says, "What do you fish? What What do you fish? What do you wish? <laughs> sorry, what do you wish future IM docs got out of their EM rotations? What one thing would you would you want them to get out of it?" So, well, the, the one thing from the purpose of this episode would be to appreciate how many patients with ridiculous stories we actually are sending home for every one that actually gets admitted. But then the real thing that will benefit them is just our approach to resuscitation. And so much uh, resuscitation goes on on the non-ICU medical floors. And if you could really do the right thing in the first 15 minutes, you could easily save lives. And I think you could get a lot out of your EM rotation along those lines. So uh, Chris Chu has a couple of questions, one of which is, uh, do you happen to have a, a specific blood pressure cutoff for safe discharge to home versus admission? Oh, thank you for bringing this up. Okay. <laughs> this is so screwed up in every range in the hospital for discharge. I will happily send a patient home with whatever blood pressure. Uh, if they have no markers of end organ damage and I could get them follow up, I will happily send a patient home with any blood pressure. Admitting them to the hospital is the right idea sometimes, but that, is, that in itself is torture because for some reason I could send home a patient with like 250 over 180, but I can't admit them to a regular <laughs> medicine floor. Yeah, I, 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 am, I am obliged to put that patient in the ICU. And, and that is ridiculous because in a patient who is sitting there speaking to you, the only way to mess that patient up is to lower their blood pressure. Yep. Mm -hmm. If they have right. a systolic at 250, it means their brain has been adapted to that for months, if not years. And the only way to mess them up is what I am forced to do 
Or if I don't do it, the IM folks will do it when they come down and see the patient, which is lower that patient down to 160. That is incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. That is the worst thing you could do on these patients. So uh, I guess I answered that question by uh, extending it to my my real pet peeve. That's one of my (laughs) biggest, you know, hobby horses. All right. And last question, speaking of pet peeves, what is the biggest pet peeve that you have uh, for primary care physicians who send their patients to the ED? Oh, there's so many. The ED is the worst place to send a patient for a non-emergent complaint. Everything will be done unnecessarily on that patient because of location bias. And this means that if a cardiologist sees a patient with some intermittent chest pain, their EKG looks okay, what are they going to tell them? You tell them, go home, maybe we'll schedule you for a stress test in the next couple of weeks. And if the pain gets worse, go to the ED. And if that patient went home and dropped dead that night, no problem. That was very appropriate. If that same patient comes to the ED and drops dead that night, then that patient was a huge miss and we will get a lawsuit on that patient. So there's no way that patient's not going to be admitted. And there's so many things like that, that simply coming to the emergency department itself is the reason that patient needs to be admitted. So sending them there like really opens up the floodgates of all the things you don't want. Now, if that primary care doc never spends time in the hospital, they don't give a crap. But putting them in the ED puts them on a path to unnecessary admissions. If you want to avoid that, don't send them there in the first place. I had one last burning question. Um, It's an open-ended one. I was really hoping to end this podcast on a kind of a thoughtful note, and there's no right answer to this, but the the whole hope of this podcast for it was for people to kind of have a better understanding of EM life and vice versa, and for us to see more eye to eye. I was wondering if you had any thoughts and if, if we can brainstorm together on what what else could we do on a systems level or uh, to, to be better colleagues to each other? You know, we talk about like interprof- interprofessional education all the time, hashtag IPE, right? And we, we have stuff between doctors, nurses, uh, PAs or PCAs, but ED docs and IM docs are, are taking care of patients during this vulnerable time of admission. What, what else can we do to see eye to eye? Yeah. So if you want to solve a lot of these issues and lead to better relationships, I think it's pretty simple. You want to reach out to the ED clinical director uh, with every particular problem that you're dealing with in terms of what I'm using the wrong words here with every patient condition you think are bad admissions. And for instance, let's take chest pain and you want to ask them, give me one champion in your ED who I could work with to make a chest pain pathway and make that pathway. Now, first of all, you should do it over drinks. So now you've made a friend in the department, but if you could get sign on between those two departments on a pathway that says, in most cases, here's what you could do to be able to avoid admission, or if they meet this part of the pathway, they get admitted. All of a sudden, you just eliminate huge swaths of the things that drive you crazy. You know, pulmonary embolism, make a pathway that both departments agree to, they both sign off on, you've made another friend, you have another person you know down there, and all of a sudden, those admissions don't need to happen. And what you realize is after about a year of doing that, there's not too much that you look at and say, this is ridiculous. And all of a sudden, that People in the two departments have bonded and things get better. Mm, that's that's wonderful. I hope that inspires our listeners to be better advocates and change agents in their hospitals. That's awesome. Thank you, Scott. This has been so much fun. Yeah. yeah well, sure how about how about some take home points or we could end on that if you want. I think that was maybe that is a good place to end. 
Um, did you have any last comments or things you wanted to leave our listeners with, asks or, or whatnot, calls to action? I'll say a few things. One is, like I said, I get along with internal medicine so well. They are my comrades in the hospital. So uh, I, I only look at this as an outsider. Second, I will say you folks are doing amazing work. I've listened to every episode that you know relates to my specialty, and I've loved them. So keep up the good work. Uh, there's always a, a lag at some point in the podcasting life when you're like, should I keep doing this? You know, is am I e- even touching people's lives? Is this too much work? Uh, you are. You are touching people's lives. So keep doing this, Scott. <laughs> thank you so much for the kind words about the podcast. We. Oh uh, yeah, we were just talking before you came on about ending it right now, but I guess we'll have to keep going, everyone. <laughs> All right, folks. Have a great night, Scott. Thanks so much. Thank Bye, you. Bye, Scott. Take care. I love the devil in the gaps. It's amazing. I actually think that the two to ten percent gap, that kind of reminds me of the observation status, which uh, my has- hospital utilizes a lot, basically for the non-teaching patients get admitted this observation status where they're in the hospital. You look at them, you're like, this patient's admitted. They're wearing a gown. They're staying in a hospital bed, but they're observation status, meaning they're they're not a full inpatient. And in, But if they get sick or if they stay long enough, they get flipped over to an inpatient. Right. But the, the same. Is it less than 48 hours? Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, 48 yeah. hours. Okay, and one thing I have to say to uh, I, I I so regret using the not sending urine electrolytes. Actually, maybe I don't regret it, but that is one of the things that like my residents will complain. Like the ER didn't send urine electrolytes. I'm like, who cares? Just take a history, and you could probably tell if they were dry or not. This, that was the entire point I was trying to make. <laughs> uh, are we doing the outro first or the intro? No, we're in the outro here. This is kind of the, oh, the post outro. episode. <laughs> This oh, I didn't the, realize we're still. This is the post episode okay. recap here, Stuart. So, if you had anything, I I did think he had some actually. I thought that was relatively constructive. Like, yes, uh, I I think the big things that I had to take away, you know, don't let your ego get in the way of collaborating with a colleague. Yeah. Just kind of try to have a conversation with them to get inside their thought process if you need to. Right. Uh, maybe talking to the ER before you go down to see a patient is going to bias you, as as Scott was saying. So maybe you only yeah. talk to them after you see the patient if you need to get some additional history from them. I thought that was all brilliant stuff. I think it was too. Well, I I think in terms of engendering goodwill too, like one of the things that I do is anytime I get an admission every time one of my patients is even in the emergency department. So if I have time, I'll walk over to the ED and see that patient and talk to the ER attending. I I feel like since I've been where I've been for such a, a long time and I do that and make a point to have relationships with those doctors. I feel like the relationship's completely non-antagonistic and often I'll get phone calls about patients in the ER like, hey, we're doing this or is this okay or can you see this person tomorrow? And it really it, it greases the wheels and makes things so much better than coming from an adversarial standpoint. I like the adversarial standpoint though. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. Not at all. I think I, I love to collaborate. It's a much better feeling. All right. Well, with that... This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, mm-hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our excellent show notes. You can get those at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And send us an email. We want your feedback to the curbsiders at gmail.com and follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And 
Dr. Shreya Paresh Trivedi. We'll have to try that better. <laughs> <laughs> better than that, hard to imagine. And I remain Dr. Paul Williams. Good night. Oh, hey, Paul. <laughs> <laughs>